Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? I am doing all right. It is almost Halloween. Yes, you put up decorations in I, the house. Yes, I got my little ghosties, my little spooters. And uh, new this year to our collection, our growing collection, are uh, some very cheap Halloween decorations from the dollar store. That's our a cat's face. Are they like cat masks, like plastic cat masks? No. Um. So you know those like like paper lanterns that yeah. like kind of squish out. Yeah. So the cat face is like a flat piece of paper, and then it has like the squish that circles around so it's like a 3d effect Hmm. and then it had stickers for the eyes mouth and nose and whiskers okay that you put on the paper squishy got it they look nice they look cool they make me feel like we have a black cat mansion that's not what we're watching tonight no okay no i just (laughs) wanted to say the spirit of the ghost cat is alive and well at Castle Scream Scene. That is true, especially because one of the things we did over on our Patreon, patreon.com slash Scream Scene Podcast, for special bonus Halloween content, is a speed run of a few different Kaibyo movies, uh, ghost cat movies. Yeah, um, that was a lot of fun to do, and I'm sure it'll be fun to listen to? I think so. Cool. As someone who is editing it right now, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I think so. But uh, that is exclusive to our Patreon. This episode is not. What are we treating ourselves to tonight? Today, Sarah, we are watching The Manster from 1959, <laughs> directed by George Brakeston and Kenneth G. Crane. I do like the idea of The Manster being like the very like overly masculine uncle to the Munsters. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Sure. You know, he Uh, like works in his garage and like, you know, you go in and it has, it has like the um, Budweiser girl calendar. Sure. Some sexy monster. Yeah. Posters. And Munsters just like, Hey Bobby, (laughs) you want to swig of my beer? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know uh, how to do a monster voice or a man voice. No. Let alone a manster voice. Before we started recording, um, I was joking that the manster could just be a monster who's got like a kind of Midwestern accent, like the manster. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, this is um, kind of yet another Japanese movie after oh. our string of Kaiden movies and Kaibyo movies that we've been doing like all month. But it's also an American movie. Okay. So this movie came about as a result of the success of American dubbed releases of Japanese sci-fi and monster movies. So Godzilla King of the Monsters in 1956, Rodan the Flying Monster in 1957, Half Human in 1957, um, The Mysterians, The H-Man, and uh, Gigantus the Fire Monster in 1959. 
these films were all like Americanized to some degree or another. So Godzilla King of the Monsters had featured U.S. shot footage integrated with the original Japanese film to add American characters to the Japanese movie. Rodan, The Mysterians, The H-Man, those were all just like dubbed to varying degrees of accuracy and respect. Uh, Half Human had American sequences to add kind of an American framing story to the Japanese narrative. And um, at one point, Gigantus the Fire Monster would have featured original monster footage shot in the U.S. for the U.S. release. Um, But this actually didn't come to pass. So Gigantus the Fire Monster is just a dub. The Manster, however, is kind of a different story. It's not a kaiju film. Okay. So it's just like a regular man-sized monster. (laughs) And the story of its production begins with George Brakeston. Born in Paris, France in 1920, Brakeston was a child actor in Hollywood in the 1930s, appearing in the popular Andy Hardy films. He served with the U.S. Army Signal Corps in the Pacific Theater during World War II, and after the war, he remained in Japan, producing and writing American films shot in Japan, like Tokyo File 212, Oriental Evil, and Geisha Girl. The Manster was a jump into the horror trend uh, for Brakeston, and kind of is like playing on the success of those Japanese monster movies while also playing on sort of the rise of just like regular horror movies in Japan and the popularity of those movies in America. Brakeston's story for the film was originally entitled The Split, and the screenplay is by Walter Sheldon. Brakeston co-directed the film with Kenneth G. Crane, who had directed the American giant monster movie Monster from Green Hell, and also directed the U.S. shot sequences for the American version of Half Human, which featured Mm. John Carradine. The monster was shot in Japan with a largely Japanese crew, um, sort of like below-the-line Japanese, above-the-line American. Um, The shoot was in English, however, and all the dialogues in English. Uh, And so the film's cast features white actors acting alongside Japanese actors who were chosen because they had good English language skills. Okay. The film's lead is Peter Dinley, who was born in 1921 in England, but was raised in Canada and served with the Royal Canadian Navy in World War II. As such, in British productions, he was often called upon to perform a North American accent. Dinley is best remembered today as the voice of Jeff Tracy in the original 1960s Thunderbirds productions, as well as the countdown voice in the title sequence of all the various incarnations of Thunderbirds. (laughs) Sure. Dinley often acted alongside his wife, Jane Hilton, and that was also the case here. Born Audrey Gwendolyn Clark in 1926 in England, Hilton was talent scouted by the Rank organization as a teen and kind of trained as an actress by them. She was married to Dinley from 1956 to 1977 and was well regarded as a talented B-movie actress. Mm, So never quite made the leap to A pictures, but was a very reliable person in B. Exactly. Okay. The film's Japanese cast includes Satoshi Nakamura and Jerry Ito. Nakamura had been born in Vancouver and Ito in New York, so both had a command of English. Jerry Ito is best known by kaiju fans for playing Clark Nelson, the villain (laughs) in 1960s Mothra. 
Oh. Yeah, the the Rolisican, I think is what they call him. It's basically like he's definitely American or maybe definitely Russian, but they don't want to say either of those ethnicities, <laughs> so they made up a fake one that is like... What An amalgamation if, of both. Yeah, what if Russia and America were the same place? Special effects for this movie are by Shinpei Takagi, who also appears in the film as a priest and is best remembered as the bandit chief in Seven Samurai. Okay. The Manster was first released as Soto no Satsujinki, or The Two-Headed Monster, on July 10th, 1959 in Japan. It was released as The Split on March 24th, 1961 in the UK, and then as The Manster on March 28th, 1962 in the United States on a double bill with Eyes Without a Face, or The Horror Chamber of Dr. Faustus, as that film was called in the United States initially. (laughs) So why are we watching it now, 1959, because that's when it was made? Yeah, that was when it was made, and that's also when it was first released in Japan. Ah, okay, 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 cool, cool, cool. So... Today, the Manster is considered kind of like a schlock camp, so bad it's good classic. Um, It did not receive good reviews at the time of its release. Um, And it was released by Loppert Pictures, which was an indie art house distributor that kind of specialized in releasing foreign films in the United States. Okay. The Manster is now in the public domain and is therefore on our YouTube playlist. Okay, cool. You can find that playlist on our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Manster from 1959, directed by George Braxton and Kenneth G. Crane. See you on the other side, everybody. back to scream scene we just finished watching the manster from 1959 directed by george brixton and kenneth g crane ben (laughs) first thoughts i actually really liked this yeah i i actually thought this was great yeah i agree i do disagree with the people who would say that this is like so bad it's good or like a movie to laugh at because I feel like the themes are serious enough that like it feels disrespectful to laugh at. Yeah. I mean, there's some funny stuff in this movie, like unintentionally funny stuff. Um, There's some good like things to chuckle at if that's the kind of thing you like to do is like chuckle at bad movies. But this is not like Ed Wood. This is not Robot Monster. Yeah. Yeah. This is definitely like a cut above those movies. This is like a a pretty serious movie and um, I think was made basically as well as the people making it could make it. Um, Yeah. With their skill, their budget. Yeah. I think they did a pretty good job. It's still a B movie, but I think they did a really good job. Yeah. So let's talk about the story which will help answer the question of just what is the Manster? I don't know if it will answer that, Ben. Okay. (laughs) Um, So when we start, we see a Dr. Suzuki 
trekking up a mountain. Um, I think it's supposed to be Mount Fuji, but it's at least a mountain that has a lot of volcanic activity. Mm-hmm. And he makes it up to his cabin lab. And actually, before we even see that, it's before the credits even, we start with a murder of four women in a bathhouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we see the silhouette and it's like this kind of like ape monster. Cut to Dr. Suzuki trekking up the mountain. When he gets to his cabin, his secretary, Tara, tells him Kenji's returned. Uh, Kenji is this ape monster. And as we learn throughout the film, Kenji also turns out to be Suzuki's brother and failed experiment. Suzuki actually uh, gasses and then shoots his brother ape monster and then tosses him into the incinerator slash into a volcano yeah i think it's just like a trap door into the volcano yeah yeah which every secret lab absolutely needs yes next we see u.s foreign news correspondent larry stanford trekking up the mountain he has been sent to dr suzuki's lab to get a story and so Suzuki and Larry are talking. Suzuki doesn't really have much to share at this point, um, but does explain that, like, yeah, the work I do is in, like, evolution. And there have been these theories about cosmic rays affecting creatures on Earth, and that's what causes the next stage of evolution. And I'm trying to do that chemically. And then he starts asking Larry all of these very personal questions about fitness and promiscuity (laughs) and larry shares that like yeah my wife is back in the states and no i've been a good boy why are you asking me all these questions doctor the best detail here is that according to this movie larry is 35 years old and like the actor playing him is 38 he looks like 49 to 55 years old at the youngest 45 yeah like his hair is like thinning and graying and he's got like these bags under his eyes like it's listen folks it's just wild i'm 32 like if i look like him in three years what have i done (laughs) rough three years (laughs) um so suzuki satisfied with these answers Um, proving Larry to be a a pretty good specimen. He drugs and then injects Larry with some kind of solution in the neck. Now, Tara is like, what are you doing, Suzuki? Like, your other experiments, Kenji and um, Emiko, who is this also failed experiment locked up down here in the basement. Um, She is kind of like an Oriwa monstrous look to her yeah yeah she looks like um she's halfway through melting from like radiation sickness or something like yeah i guess emiko and kenji volunteered for this um and tara's like larry doesn't know what the fuck you're doing why are you choosing him and suzuki's like no he's a great specimen this might be what my experiments have been needing suzuki gives kind of the standard like Science doesn't need ethics speech. Which is quite something coming from him as we learn, as I said, Kenji being his brother and Emiko being his wife. Yes, who apparently both asked him to do this to them. Yeah, and then when he refused to do it to Emiko, she injected it to herself. We learn all this through dialogue. Yeah, I feel like Suzuki's just at the like, fuck it, who cares stage of things. (laughs) I've lost enough. Yeah. Uh, 
sunken cost fallacy. Right, yeah. No, Larry, this is his last assignment as a foreign correspondent here in Japan, and then he's heading back to the U.S. Um, because his wife, Linda, is like, you, you've been away for a very long time. If it wasn't Japan, you were covering revolutions, you were covering wars. Like, can you please come back home and we can have, like, a traditional American suburb family? He's two days away from retirement, Sarah. <laughs> So he's like, cool, I'll be like leaving Japan in a couple days. And Suzuki's like, well, have you really had a chance to like see Japan? I'd love to take you out like to see the town, go to a tea house, go to a bathhouse, that sort of thing. And so they do that. Um, All of this extra like alcohol and mineral bathing Mm -hmm. is exacerbating pain in Larry's shoulder, which happens to be right where the injection was. Now, since that injection, coincidentally also since hanging out with Suzuki and getting drunk every night and visiting all these geishas, people are describing, people as in, like, Ian, his boss, are describing Larry as, like, a new guy. But not in the sense of, like, wow, he's a new man, but in the sense of, like, wow, he's become terrible. He's, like, avoiding work, he's not answering Linda's calls and not calling her back, and he's also missed the flight back what are you doing he's going out every night drinking and banging geishas basically basically um you put it really well when we were watching it which is that he has transformed into don draper yes and i i think the movie does a decent enough job of making it clear that like he wasn't like this before like he was a good husband he was a good boy as he puts it and it's really interesting because it starts out reasonable with this idea of like yeah, see the sights before you leave. And then like we cut to like two weeks later or something and he's just like a a louse. Yeah. And I mean, it looks like he hasn't stopped drinking for those full two weeks. Yeah. Um, Now they do go to a bathhouse and Tara, the secretary takes along and Tara and Larry sleep together. Yeah. Like Suzuki sets them up. Suzuki is the world's greatest wingman. And then just like sort of fades away into the background. (laughs) We kind of find out later that like the whole idea here is Suzuki's trying to keep Larry in Japan like as long as possible so he can observe, you know, the results of the experiment. But the way this movie talks around sex is really funny because they basically need to have Suzuki be like, hey, I've brought my secretary here for you to fuck, but they can't <laughs> have him say that. So like, so like uses... Tara arrives and Suzuki's like, Oh, I just remembered I need to take a really long phone call. <laughs> and... um, but you guys go into the bathhouse together where it's a private room and no one will be interrupting anything. Yeah. Where, you know, two pe- two adult people of opposite uh, genders will find themselves naked and wet uh, for an extended period of time. By the way, Tara is a woman of adventure. Um, yeah, he really says that. Yeah, it's a lot of euphemisms. Tara also has like a mysterious, undisclosed at any point. Like, backstory. Backstory that's hinted to be like dark and tragic. Yeah, it, it, she like speaks multiple languages. When she and Suzuki are talking, she's like, I've stayed with you because I don't want to go back to that bad place where you found me. Yeah. Like, it's really weird. Yeah, yeah. She has like a generic femme fatale backstory, basically. So Larry and Tara are like 
out gallivanting for several days. Um, we get like a montage. Yeah, of different dates. And then when Larry returns back to his apartment, Tara in tow, who shows up in the house except for Linda and Ian, his boss. Um, <laughs> and Linda's like, you have to choose me or the girlfriend. Enough of this. And Larry chooses Tara. And Linda's like, oh my God, he's truly a different man. Like, I don't know who this person is. He's never been like this. And Ian concurs. Um, And Linda's like, no, you know what? I'm going to stay here until midnight and wait for him to come back. And if he doesn't, then it's over. Larry does come back. Uh, Tara kind of convinces him that, like, you need to fully break it off. And they have a confrontation. Basically, Larry is getting very aggressive and is saying things like, I should have, like, hit you or something like that to make yeah. you not, like, be such an upstart. Yeah, yeah. He's he's basically saying, like, I wish, like, I should have um, put you in your place. Yeah. And stuff like that. So he chases her out, basically. And that's when, like, he gets, like, a lot of really bad pain in his left hand, the side where he was injected. And he sees suddenly his hand transforms into a monster's hand it's all super hairy gross long nails that sort of thing but it's only his hand so he takes another swig of jack daniels and goes walking on the town to try to like figure out like what do i do what is going on i'm kind of walking around in a daze and he comes across a buddhist temple where there's a priest inside he's chanting and he starts trying to talk to the priest to be basically like stuff's happening i don't know what to do and the priest either because he um, doesn't understand English or because he was in the middle of his own prayers, returns to singing, and Larry loses his temper and attacks the priest, kills him. I do think this movie does a pretty good job of, like, making it clear that, like, the Japanese characters don't all just magically know English. Yeah. Even, the characters who are speaking English, they will speak Japanese when they're entering the phone, when they're speaking to... Um, like the police officer when he's speaking to his fellow police officers, that sort of thing. So now when we see Larry, uh, he keeps his hand hid- hidden because it's not like transforming back. Um, and he is just continually looking worse. Partly, I think, because he continues to drink and drink. Um, Ian confronts him about like, you're not coming back to work. Like, who are you? What are you doing? And he sees that Larry has Buddhist prayer beads. He's like, well, that's weird. Does that have anything to do with, like, the nearby murder of a Buddhist priest? And Larry's like, get the fuck out of here. Mind your own business. Eventually, Ian comes by with the doctor friend of his, who happens to be a psychiatrist, and tries to float the idea that maybe, you know, Larry should talk to someone about what is going on. Now, Larry chases them out of his apartment, but then the pain in his shoulder returns and he looks and there's a fucking eye. There's a fucking eye in his shoulder. I was not expecting that. So he's freaking out. He starts wandering the town and he makes his way to the psychiatrist office. And now the doctor, he's there late at night and he hears like someone banging on the door and opening it. And he takes a peek and sees that it's Larry. And he's like, okay, something ain't right. That boy ain't right. So he calls the police to come. But unfortunately, it's too late because uh, Larry attacks and kills him, but not before growing a full head out of his shoulder. 
Um, I guess that makes sense because the eye was attached to something, you know? Mm -hmm. At this point, Larry himself has a bit of a like Frederick March, Mr. Hyde look going on. And the second head sort of has like a unshrunken head kind of vibe to its look. Yeah. And I feel like the head gets bigger every time we see it as well. Yeah. Um, Now we do get uh, some chase sequences here of the police following after him. Ian heads to our lead detective here, Detective Aida, and says like, hey, I think my friend Larry is involved because he had these prayer reads. We just talked to the doctor psychiatrist. Like, I think he's involved somehow. Um, And so we get some more chase scenes. Linda gets spooked by um, two-headed Larry. And Larry himself as well is becoming more and more, like, monstrous looking. Eventually... We cut back to the mountain laboratory where Tara is like, Suzuki, I can't go on doing this. I feel really bad about dragging Larry along, just waiting for him to turn into this monster. Like, is there any way that we can split the monster from Larry and save him? And Suzuki's like, no, things have gone too far. Things have failed. Like, I'm not super confident in any of this anymore. I think he's doomed. And Tara's like, well, that's not good enough. And I think you'll be needing this. And hands him a tanto, which is a uh, ritual knife for seppuku. Yeah. For uh, Which is like ritualized suicide. Yeah. And it's at this moment that Suzuki realizes that Tara has called the police and let them know like to come to the lab. So we stay with Suzuki as Tara leaves. And Suzuki goes and says like, oh, Emiko, I've, I've failed you. And you know, has this really heartfelt, tragic thing and then shoots her and kills her. Mm-hmm. And then he's about to commit seppuku when Larry comes up to the lab. Now, he first encounters Tara and, you know, pushes her aside. She faints, whatever. He heads down to the lab, interrupts Suzuki from committing seppuku. Um, but then Suzuki's like, here's my chance, tries to inject him with the solution that is going to help split these creatures in response to being stabbed with a needle larry stabs suzuki with the knife and so suzuki is dead the police are closing in and so monster larry grabs tara of course and heads up the mountain um which again is a volcano that is active and as he is carrying tara up he starts to have a lot of pain again and we see him split into two one part returning to Larry um, post-transformation and then the other half of him and kind of grown out of his clothes as well is an ape monster thing. You know, it's the little details that help. Yes. And one of the things that I so appreciated about this moment was that normal Larry, who's still wearing clothes, doesn't have like his left hand like sleeve or pant leg like he doesn't just magically have his like normal clothes back after a full ass person ripped away from him yeah it's all torn his left arm is bloody as fuck Mm -hmm. he still has it but it's super bloody um and so he starts fighting with the ape monster now the police ian and linda have all followed up the mountain and they see this confrontation tara also comes to from fainting and she tries to stop the ape thing from killing larry and the ape monster then is like well fuck you and tosses her into a volcano and then larry pushes the ape monster into the volcano as well 
Linda screams and goes running and tries to help Larry from falling in himself. But the police surround and, you know, that he's going to get the medical attention he needs. And then we end with Ian and Linda talking about, you know, hoping for the good that remains in Larry to, like, power through. Um, because the uh, detective, Aida, uh, is still going to have to, like, arrest him. Because they don't know, like, who did the bad thing, the ape monster or Larry. So he still is probably going to jail. Uh, and that's that's how it ends. Of course, though, I will add, like, they do say, like, oh, man, like, we shouldn't dabble in what man is not meant to yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, there's the standard kind of closing sentence. But I do like the idea that the Japanese legal system is going to have to sort out, like, who is criminally responsible for these murders. <laughs> yeah. Like, Larry, an ape monster that split off from Larry. Or, like, you know, honestly, if I was Larry's defense team, I would be putting the blame on Dr. Suzuki. But regardless, there's going to be a wild trial out of this. Absolutely. Um, they do also add that, like, you know, in along the discussion of, like, hoping for the good that remains in Larry, they also extend that to the good in all men. Mm-hmm. And that was just a little funny that they were like, you know, not all men mm-hmm. have secret ape monsters inside them. Right. Uh, but that's the end. So there's a lot to like here. Um, yes. And it's really interesting the way this movie is kind of a mix of American and Japanese styles. Like from the American side of things, like we've seen this kind of like mad scientist experiments on a guy, guy turns into monster thing many times. Like if anything, this is sort of like a literalization of the old Jekyll and Hyde movies that were like a metaphor for alcoholism where like here, like it's like, no, like the evil side of him is like an alcoholic womanizer. Like that's the text. Right. But then there's also like the movie has the kind of just go for it. Wildness of Japanese tokusatsu, like kaiju movies where there's just clearly like, no one saying, oh, that's stupid. You shouldn't do that. It's like, no, let's see if we can do that. Yeah, let's put an eye in his shoulder and have it look at the camera like wild. So the thing about the eye in the shoulder, um, I knew that he was going to have two heads at some point. That's fair. That was one of the titles you said. Yeah, the Japanese title of this movie is The Two-Headed Monster. And so I actually, like, I wasn't, that surprised about the eye in the shoulder or them splitting apart because I've seen that exact thing of like eye to second head to split apart from the shoulder in two other movies, both of which were made like 40 years after this. Oh, so clearly by directors who may have like seen this on late night TV as kids. Um, One of them is army of darkness. Oh, yeah. Where um, Ash's evil self starts out as like a little eye on his shoulder and then grows a second head and then they split apart. I can believe Sam Raimi seeing the monster. Yes. The other movie that I'm reminded of um, is a film called How to Get Ahead in Advertising, which is a... (laughs) That's a good title if he's growing ahead. Yeah. Very um, good. It's a late 1980s black comedy starring Richard E. Grant. It's British. And it's basically Richard E. Grant as this advertising executive who, like, doesn't really believe in what he's doing anymore. And he's getting, like, really sick and overworked. And he gets a boil 
on his shoulder that eventually grows into like like it's an eyeball and then it grows into like a second head and then it like straight up just becomes a new guy um although they don't actually split apart what happens is the original richard e grant like atrophies until he's like a tiny little thing on the evil richard e grant's shoulder but evil richard e grant like really is into advertising and capitalism and marketing because he's evil right and he like ends the movie with this like don draper-esque speech about how like the purpose of advertising is to help people find happiness and like advertising is this wonderful thing. And he's like on a horse going over like hills with like the sunrise and like the um, Gustav Holtz, like Jupiter score in the background. It's a wild movie. I've had it on our criterion list uh, for a while as something for us to watch. But um, that was the other movie I was reminded of um, with regards to this movie. The movie that I was reminded of is also in the future. Uh, the Fly with mm. Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, I can see the the parallels there. Because the body horror elements, but also, and this got me also thinking about um, an American werewolf in London or whatever, of like the tying of increased sex drive when you are going through a transformation. Right. And I'm like, well, why would it be like that? Is it because of like, you know, increased metabolism or whatever? And it's like, it's a very simple answer. It's puberty. Yes. It's a puberty (laughs) metaphor. Interestingly enough, um, people going through um, gender confirmation transition who are taking like hormones often find that they're like super, super horny for the same reason, because you're essentially going under a medically induced puberty. But yeah, I can totally see the parallels that you're sort of giving here with The Fly. This movie... It goes really out there, like over the top with the body horror compared to stuff that we've seen up to this point. Um, like it's it's surprisingly grisly. Like mm-hmm. the murders are like disturbing. Well, I would add an asterisk there because we don't see gore with it. Sure. It's There's... not disturbing in the way that like like you're not seeing a whole ton of blood. You're not seeing people ripped apart. You're seeing people lying on the ground after being attacked. Um, but there are enough of these murders and quite a few of them before Larry becomes full, like second head um, are in the guise of like a sexual assault as well. Yeah. He, he takes a lot of, you know, women into alleys and attacks them at night kind of thing. And I mean, that's like standard monster MO stuff, but because of the way the movie's been really frank about like he's fucking geishas and having an affair with his wife and stuff, that subtext of sexual assault with monsters attacking women really feels a lot closer to the surface. Yeah. But like, even though there isn't a lot of gore outside of the first murder, uh, which does have like a big blood splatter, um, some of the murders are just like really just intense for a movie from 1959. Like there's that cop that he throws off the top of the like scaffolding. Yeah. Or there's the time where like, we don't even see him kill this cop, but the cops chasing him come across a cop that he's killed. Who's just like limp body is on the um, hammer for like a bell. Yeah, that's very true. I think also the way it was shot. Hmm. 
blends gravity. So I'm thinking of particularly when the psychiatrist is attacked. There's no, like, him going to Larry to be like, oh, you've changed your mind. And, like, the guy, like, him thinking that, oh, no, everything's fine. But the recognition of the doctor that something's wrong. Yeah, he and recognizes I need the cops that right, right away. Now. Yeah. Yeah, just the level of um, seriousness that everyone is treating the situation. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to just kind of throw these words around haphazardly because um, in like modern day film discourse, they're kind of a cliche. But like the thing that surprised me here is like how dark and adult Mm -hmm. this movie is. Like it's, you know, I can see the point of view from which this movie is goofy as heck, but this movie feels like it was made for an adult audience, not a child audience. Yeah, don't take your kid to see Manster. Which, like, most of these kind of mad scientist monster movies, even the Japanese monster movies, have a kind of, like, yeah, this is for kids and or necking teenagers feel to them. Yeah. This really doesn't. Like, this feels, you know, like, the emotional through line of this movie is that, like, essentially even though it's chemically induced, Larry's going through like a midlife crisis here where he's, you know, having an affair and staying out drinking. And it has this feel of, you know, he keeps justifying his behavior by being like, you know, I'm finally enjoying myself and having a good time after a lifetime of work. Like what's wrong with that? And, you know, there are scenes where he has these conversations with his wife about how they've drifted apart and he's become a different person and they have that kind of roger corman feel of like adding in human soap opera drama to the horror movie but it's all stuff that like would go over like a kid's head and it's all written like weirdly well or at least like written seriously as if like the writer like wants you to be invested in these characters in these scenarios which is different than some of the writing in some of these movies that we've seen, especially the American B movies, which tend to have almost this subtext of like, eh, nobody gives a fuck about this anyway. <laughs> yeah, I think everyone involved also kind of recognizes that there's like a seriousness to things. I'm sure they did have like fun times goofing around with the second head, but like, I don't know, there's no moment where like people side eye or anything. Yeah, there's a lot of like really moody cinematography. Tons of atmosphere, absolutely. At one point they're running through a cemetery. Yeah. Which like it it just kind of makes it feel like a universe like a tie to a universal horror movie. There's also just like this added kind of production value, I guess, of the authenticity of them actually being in Japan. Yeah. Um and seeing Japanese things like um, before we go into the Buddhist temple, there's like a little prayer procession um, seeing the geishas. Tara's house is like a traditional look of a Japanese house with like the the stones on like the, the grass and all that. And there's some there's some like traditional Western stereotypes being applied yes. to Japanese culture here, but they feel like slightly less egregious, like they feel a little bit tempered by the fact that these are like actual Japanese people playing the Japanese characters and not just like white dudes in makeup by the fact that we're actually on location in real Japanese places. And, you know, just the fact that the guy who made this movie like had been living in Japan since the end of world war two. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it doesn't feel quite as orientalized as something produced in America would be. Um, 
yeah, it's 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 good. Um, I think the creature and makeup effects are decent. Yeah, they they're all right. It's um, like the transformation of the hand isn't groundbreaking. It's just the cross dissolve. The prosthetics, though, I think is where it's trying to push technical boundaries. And it also is pushing, at least in my opinion, um, boundaries of taste. Yeah. Like Emiko is grisly. She like screams and is like shaking the bars. Like it's, it's a lot. Yeah. And you know, the ape costume stuff is nothing we haven't seen a million times. And, and you know, the second head does sort of look like an inflated balloon on his shoulder but like they're going for it, which yeah. is something I always notice about Japanese special effects is that even if they can't like achieve perfect, you know, photorealistic verisimilitude, that doesn't stop them from like doing the thing and and going for it. Yeah, I think Split is the better title mm. than Manster. But Manster is very fitting in how it highlights the masculinity theme. Yeah, that I feel kind like of mentioned here. I feel like that's not what the distributors were no, going for. No, they were going for like laugh at it, Roger Corman type of style. He's a man. He's a monster. He's a manster. Yeah, but yeah, but it just so happens that masculinity is a theme. Yeah, um, and so it's really interesting to think about how like the traits that larry exhibits are traits that uh are tied to toxic masculinity but also would be like idealized in like john wayne right right john wayne is like never say sorry and larry would concur yeah or like the fact that we brought up don draper earlier like obviously don draper isn't a character who existed in 1959 but within the world of his story, Mad Men, like that's 1960. And Don Draper, you know, the shtick of Mad Men is that like on the outside, Don Draper is like an idealized man. Um, and then on the inside, he's all broken and fucked up. But like, you know, those traits in Don, like I'm the guy who, you know, can drink all day and I don't take shit from anyone and, you know, I'm brilliant and I, you know, have all the ladies and all this sort of stuff are all presented as like cool, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're like three years out from the first James Bond movie. Mm -hmm. The James Bond books have been around for a while, a while at this point. And so like, this is, you know, what a cool guy looks like, but here they're depicted as negative traits. Um, they're absolutely tied to him becoming a monster. Like this is the lost weekend with, you know, a second head with a second head. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I also think this is our first man with two heads movie. Yeah. Yeah, which is pretty is, notable. Does that become a, a trope? Oh, yeah. There's like a whole subgenre of like man with two heads movies. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think that's notable. Uh, I think also what is notable is the scientist recognizing that they've made a huge fucking mistake. Which is like... Beyond just like, oh, I, I've gone past what man is meant to know, but more of a like... Oh God, I'm a terrible person. Which is a very Japanese thing. Is it? Like, well, it just feels to me in terms of the difference, like, like, you know, Serizawa kills himself in Gojira. Like, there's this thing 
in Japanese media of like, oh, I fucked up and, you know, now I'm going to kill myself being much more common than like, I think partially it might be because, and I might be going out on a limb here. So, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Japanese listeners, but like, because there's a cultural tradition in Japan of that ritualized suicide of that idea of like, you know, you've lost all honor or like you've fucked up or, you know, you are responsible for something terrible and there's no coming back from it. So you should just kill yourself. And that's just what you're supposed to do in that situation. That's very different from Western culture where suicide traditionally is like a major sin. It's a, you're going to hell for sure. Sin. You aren't supposed to kill yourself. If you've done wrong, it's up to God to punish you, not yourself. Like mm-hmm. it's it's God's domain. And so what we see happen to mad scientists in Western stories more often is that an external force punishes them for their hubris, right? Yeah. Or they uh, sacrifice themselves in a sort of heroic way. Right. Like, There's some sort of redemption yeah. or else they're cackling about how I did it and no one else ever could on like the side of a cliff and then like a lightning bolt hits the cliff and they fall or to their death or something. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's interesting to see those different cultural values presented here in what is, you know, technically an American produced film. Yeah. I think this was a very good, good movie. Um, why don't we move on to ranking? For sure. So I've got a bit of a wide range, Sarah, but it's all in the top half of the list. Okay. I have a kind of a narrow range, so maybe mine fits in yours. Okay, so for some reason, when I was thinking about movies to compare this to in my head, I kept thinking about Hammer Horror. Okay. And I I think that's maybe just because of like knowing that the Hammer Horror movies were really popular in Japan and that was starting to like affect Japanese horror movies as we saw with Tokaido Yatsuya Kaiden. But that was kind of where my mind went. Um, And I figured that this, while really fun, is not as good as Curse of Frankenstein. So Curse of Frankenstein is at number 43. I made that my ceiling. Right below Curse of Frankenstein is It, the Terror from Beyond Space, which is like the prototype alien. And I thought maybe this is better than that. Maybe not. Um, They both kind of share that element of feeling like a prototype for later movies. So I worked down from there and where I ended up with for a floor was number 72, uh, Mysterios de Ultratumba, because above that is Curse of the Undead at 71, which is the vampire gunslinger movie. And that movie is also fucking great. And then like below that, we get, you know, Mysteries of From Beyond the Tomb, Return of Dracula, Ghosts of Kasane Swamp, I Was a Teenage Frankenstein. There's like a notable quality drop there where we go from movies that maybe aren't like perfect, but have like a spark to them, like Curse of the Undead or Dementia or like The Werewolf, um, to movies that are maybe a bit deader inside, <laughs> uh, like Return of Dracula or Blood of Dracula. That's, so, they're just undead. <laughs> That, that's why they're dead inside, Ben. So that was my range, 44 to 72. Okay, so I am not in your range. Oh, interesting. When I was looking at the list, there were two movies that came to mind. Mm-hmm. The first one 
was half human. That makes sense. Um, Jujin Yuki Otoko. I think the manster handles the themes that Honda was wanting to deal with better. I think you're right. Um, so I made that my floor. That's 99. And then I started looking up. And the other movie that came to mind was Cult of the Cobra. Okay, interesting. Because of the way that they talked about masculinity. Right. I feel like Cult of the Cobra uh, did it inadvertently. Yes. <laughs> Whereas I feel like it's text in the Manster. Maybe that's because of the title, but I feel like they're really going for that text. But I felt that 91, The Black Room, which has that dual role of Boris Karloff, the dualness was handled better in that movie than in The Manster. The Manster, I think, does a really good job of showing like the gradual decline, but it does kind of feel like a switch. So the midpoint between our lists is number 83, Evampiri. And the most interesting movie to take a look at in that range uh, around Evampiri is 84. Yeah. The 1941 Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde with Spencer Tracy. How do we feel like this movie compares to that? That movie obviously has a larger budget. It's, you know, an MGMA picture. It's got a lot of talent behind the camera, but it also is sort of um, kneecapped by the fact that it couldn't directly talk about any of the stuff that it was talking about um, in comparison to the 1931 Jekyll and Hyde and certainly in comparison uh, to this movie, which is very frank about what it's talking about. It's very frank, but I think what makes the difference here is the 41 Jekyll and Hyde makes an attempt to showcase the psychological inner workings of what's going on with Jekyll because they can't do it explicitly. Mm-hmm. And I think that that makes it a bit more human sure in a way and less i don't know it does feel like it has less teeth as a result because we are kind of speaking in metaphors but the manster like we don't really get an inside look into how larry is feeling about this that's as true. far as we can tell he thinks that this is all just fine that's true and if there's a place where the manster kind of falls down it's that it doesn't do the work to connect the dots between like Suzuki's trying to come up with the next stage in human evolution and like force an evolutionary change. This makes Larry's evil side take over his personality and he engages in all this bad behavior. And then that evil side splits off and is like a ape man, which feels like a step back in human evolution. It's touching on a lot of ideas that we've seen ever since Jekyll and Hyde of like evil is primitivism is ape monster, you know, versus enlightened man. But it's not actually like doing the work of making a statement about any of that. So I'm inclined to agree with you that, that I think Jekyll and Hyde is a little smarter. Um, Your point about Karloff's performance in black room is also really well taken. Um, can you remind me which uh, which Roger Corman movie "Not of This Earth" is? <laughs> is "Not of This Earth" the one with the sunglasses guy with the briefcase? Yeah, um, and it has like the flying things going around to collect blood. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. 
So it's it's kind of like feature evil men in black. Right. Yes. Um, okay. I'm good with putting this above that and below the black room then. Okay, cool. Let's do that. All right. So entering the list at the new number 92, it's The Manster from 1959, a.k.a. Soto no Satsujinki, a.k.a. The Split, directed by George Brakeston and Kenneth G. Crane. Um, before we completely close out, when this was shown in Japan, did they dub or did they do subtitles? I don't know. Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry to say. I, I just don't know. I have seen what the Japanese poster looks like, but... Um, and well, they it, completely give away that he has two heads. Yes. Well, <laughs> um, that's the name of the movie. Yes. <laughs> it, it looks like a Japanese movie. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. There you can find links to the many episodes we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our Ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore ScreamScene. ScreamScene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed, and you can help the show out by leaving us a rating or a review. You can also just tell a friend about the show. Word of mouth is a great way for us to grow our audience. And if you really like what we do and have a few extra bucks to spare, you can always head on over to patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Signing up at the $1 level entitles you to a thank you, on air from us at the five dollar level you're going to get weekly bonus content bonus audio cut from previous episodes whether that's um like research that didn't turn out to be relevant or just like jokes that didn't turn out to be relevant either way it's a lot of fun stuff every monday at the $10 level, you are going to receive um, like written pieces. They kind of come out when Sarah or I have good ideas for them. They can be short stories, they can be essays, but they're always something interesting and cool. Patrons at uh, every level get to participate in our monthly horror-adjacent bonus episode polls. Our horror-adjacent bonus episode for October is an episode on the adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, the Disney animated film. And there's currently a poll up to decide what our episode in November will be. Uh, looks like it's going to be over the garden wall, but if you want to vote for some really out there choices, you're going to want to sign up for our Patreon. In the month of October, we tend to do a lot of special extra bonus stuff for patrons. Uh, one thing that you can look forward to is the aforementioned All Ghost Cats episode of Scream Scene for our patrons. And if you want to be a part of any of that delightful goodness this Halloween, you're looking for patreon.com slash Scream Scene Podcast. So what are we watching next week, Ben? Next week, Sarah, we are back to the United States after like a solid month's worth of episodes in Japan. Yeah, I feel like October was like all Japanese movies. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and this time, we're not just back to America, we're back to a familiar set of characters with Return of the Fly, starring oh. Vincent Price. Interesting. Um, but he died. Yes, it's about his son. Okay. That's true. They did have a kid. Mm -hmm. Well, we will see you then, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye. Bye.